Amen. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20 this morning. Exodus chapter 20. The uh, series that we are in is in a section of the Old Testament called God Delivers. And speaking of how He delivered His people from slavery and bondage and how He delivers us from sin. And we've traced the story of the Israelites as they were slaves and then as they were rescued from Egypt and and then God led them in, in the wilderness to this mountain, this mountain called Sinai. And upon this mountain, God gives the people of Israel His law, His command, the perfect ten. Last week we looked at the first set of the Ten Commandments and we saw how they they all related back to our, our relationship with God as first. It's the most important thing. Our focus, our heart, our desire, everything is, is pointed toward Him. And at this point now, we, we, we take a break and now we switch focus and the focus goes from our direct relationship with God to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength to then how do we love our neighbor as ourselves? How do we take that which is placing God first and then how, does that, how is that lived out morally in a holy way based on God's character horizontally with those around us? And God is preparing his, his people, these people who had grown up in a pagan culture, and God was preparing them. No, you don't need to follow the gods of the Egyptians whom you tried to go back and do and build yourself a golden calf and all of that. Try to go back. They're always trying to go back to Egypt. We're always trying to go back. Back to slavery. Back to sin. Back to the world's system. We're always, that's, that pull is always there. And God is saying, no, you need to quit that which is behind. Cut ties with that and follow me. Here, I am your creator. I made you. I designed you. I engineered you in your mother's womb, in your inmost being. I engineered you. I know what is best for you. And that's where we come to this morning as we unpack the second half of the Ten Commandments. Look with me in verse 12. He says, Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, you in a mighty and powerful way have spoken. You have spoken your truth to your people. Lord, this morning we stand in the line of the Israelites having received your word, spoken from your mountain. Lord, forgive us when we read these words and we don't tremble. Forgive us when we read these words and hear these words and they don't cause us to shudder in our bones. Forgive us when we take your words lightly. 
Lord, we stand at the base of your mountain. You have spoken. May we hear and follow your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we look at the second half of the Ten Commandments and in, in preparing for this, this message this morning and to teach this passage uh, again, um, so thankful to our small group and Sunday school teachers who have dug into God's Word this morning. I saw classes totally disregarding the bell because how can you put a time limit on God's Word this morning? There's so much here. Uh, someone even told me you could take, uh, I think Mike told me, Mike was saying you could take each commandment and make it its own lesson. And that's so, that's so true. So this morning, we're not gonna, we cannot be exhaustive with every one of these commandments. But we are going to look at the truth. And the way the Lord just led me to break this down, and many times we, we, we focus on the thou shalt not... But there's a principle behind God giving the thou shalt nots. And if you've grown up in church, and many here have grown up and heard the Ten Commandments or memorized the Ten Commandments, we're not going to focus on the thou shalt not. That is there. But we're going to take it from the, the angle of, okay, what does that mean we should do? Okay, we're going to look at both sides of the coin. Not just a list of don'ts, which are true, but also, okay, where does this point us to, toward? And so this morning, this, this commandment, te- the commandments teach us then what we should value. And so this morning, number one, honor your father and mother. We value family. We value family. He tells us to honor our father and mother that your days may be long in the land your God is giving you, reiterating the promise of the the land that they had not received yet, that there was a land that is fairer than day. There's a land flowing with milk and honey. There's a place He's prepared for them. And in order for you to live long, in order for you to prosper, you're going to need to honor your parents. We learned this morning that the word honor here is not the word for just strict, complete, unfettered obedience. That's what we want to make it out to be, that it's just unquestioned obedience. No, the word for honor here is the word uh, in Hebrew means for weight or weightiness, meaning we should honor in the terms of a deep respect for our parents. That means this commandment does not end when you turn 18 or 21 or you move out of the house or whatever. The, The idea of honoring and respecting your parents begins the day you are born and ends the day that they die. This should be complete. Many people, when they talk about family, they want to um, they want to use want to think about family as being society, and use terms like uh, we've heard phrases. Our politicians use phrases like "it takes a village." Speaking of trying to, that really, that the government, that society is our family. And that true change in society and true change in culture comes where? From the top down. That your true allegiance is to whatever we tell you it is. In our world, in our time, our world does not value family. In fact, family is the enemy. You see, there are people who are much smarter than you, much more enlightened than you, that that know know how better to raise your children and raise your family. In fact, if we could get the parents out of the way, society would be a much better place, according to the cultural elites, according to the ones who walk the halls of power and influence in our own country right now. That is the the goal. They want to destroy the very definition of the family. Family is whatever we, we, we want it to be. And God says, 
to honor your father and your mother. You see, God designed the family. God designed the family before he designed government. God designed the family to be your very first cocoon and home and school and religious instruction and authority in your life. Before you know who before you know who to vote for, you know your parents. Before you know your mother's name, you know who she is, you know her voice. She is the one who feeds you, who cares for you, who loves you, who provides for you. To honor your father and mother means to honor the very representative of God's authority in your life from the first moment you enter the world. You see, and the government is trying to destroy the family, and yet we talk to, um, we, have, we have excellent educators in this room right, right now. This, this sanctuary is filled with public school educators, homeschool educators, moms and dads, grandparents, educating young minds. I speak to teachers all the time, and they feel the weight. They love their children in their care. They want to give them the very best education. Our government tax dollars are funding. It's not a matter of resources because mon- there is money going. Okay, It's not a, a matter of, of buildings. We have buildings. We have air conditioning. We have heat in most of our schools. Okay, What's the, what's the largest thing that hurts our, our public school teachers right now? It's not... It's not their training. They're excellent. It's not their care because they love... It's because it's, it's not about the money for them. You don't go into education for the money. I'm just telling you right now. Okay? What is it? There's no support in the home. That's right. You can love a child in the classroom and you can give them all the tools and all the knowledge, but if they are not loved and earning, uh, learning authority and respect for authority in the home, there's not a whole lot we can do from the outside in. It's got to come from the inside out. And and everything we try to do to fix those problems in society, it's not going to be about more money. It's not going to be about smaller class sizes. It's not going to be about newer buildings until we fix the family. And yet, what is our country trying to do? Trying to destroy the family, the very building block of society, the very building block of the home, the very building block in which we instill the next generation. Um, in preparing for this, I, uh, I ran across an article in the um, very ultra conservative Columbia newspaper. Some of you caught the irony in that. Um, they had an article in there, and there was a book review, very, the latest book on parenting, the latest book on parenting, and it's by a uh, family practitioner and psychologist. I guess um, he went into family practice and realized all his patients were crazy and decided he had to go, you know, get some counseling himself and got a degree. So he's, uh, he's, he's sort of two ends here. And uh, he's written a book, Dr. Leonard Sachs written a book called The Collapse of Parenting. And um, in, the, in the interview for the, for the book review, he, um, he writes, he said, it, it kinda, they, they asked him, why did you write the book? And he said, well, I, I had to write the book because um, I was talking to a, a 10-year-old boy who came into my office and he had a stomach ache. And I was talking to the mother about his upset tum, uh, stum, tummy ache when the kid is sitting on his uh, cell phone playing video games and not even involved in it, and uh, the mom starts describing the stomach ache, and I quote, the boy says, shut up, mom, you don't know what you're talking about. And he laughs. Dr. Sachs says, that would have been very unusual in the 90s or early 2000s, but now it's common. Children, girls, and boys being disrespectful to parents, being disrespectful to one another, being disrespectful to themselves, 
verbally and otherwise. The mother did nothing. Just looked a little embarrassed. The culture has changed in a profound way in a short period of time in ways that have really harmed kids. It's gotten upside down. Now it's not the parents who are in authority. Who's in the authority? The children. Okay, now let me ask you this, parents. How did they get that authority? When we give it up. When we give it, when we give it over. And we give it over in the guise of, I want to be my parents' friend. I, don't want, I, don't want, I want them to like me. Uh, we give it over in saying, I want to treat them like an adult. They're not adults. We, we give it over when we try to say, well, I, I want to let them make their own decisions. This is, the, this is the end result. In Denmark right now, Denmark in Europe right now, they, have, uh, they are allowing children the decision to end their lives. Euthanasia. We don't want to tell. Court, court's getting involved. Saying, well, the parents... It's not the parent's decision over life and death. That's the, that's the road we're going on. I think about, you think about um, honoring and valuing family, basic building block. Basic building block is teaching authority to our children. And we wonder why our society, there is no respect for authority. If, there, if authority is not taught in the home, with mom and dad. It's not going to be followed in the classroom when our children go out to get their first job. It's not going to be followed in the workplace. They're not going to show authority to the other authorities in our life. And who's the ultimate authority? God is the ultimate authority. God is the ultimate authority from which every other authority is, a, is derived. The authority of the government, the authority of parents, the authority of the home. We lead our children to ruin when we take things upside down. And we derive them of the God-given authority in their lives. And that's you, mom and dad. And that's your job. That's your number one job is to point them to Jesus and love them, but to teach them to respect authority. Not because you're mean, not because you don't love them. It's because you do love them. Amen? Amen. And here's, here's the other side of this. Now, I see this, this, this trap. So, number one, parents with your children. God has given you the authority to be their authority in their lives. It's okay. Children, respect your parents' authority. I'll tell you, we teach our children here to respect their parents and honor their parents. Here's one where I see we've got to move on because we've got other points to get to. But here's something that, that bothers me. We can take this we value family. We can take the honoring your father and mother to the other extreme. And this is, this is what I see just in church life. We can see this. When God created Adam and Eve, and God put them together, He said, and the man will leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife, and they will become what? one flesh. The idea of leaving and cleaving. When you get married, there's a sense in which you leave your parents. Not just you leave the basement and get married. But now your allegiance is no longer to your mother and your father. It's to who? It's to your spouse. Absolutely. That's got to be first. 
You can't properly love and honor and respect your wife if you are putting her second to your parents. Amen. And I, this is, I see this. You haven't left. You haven't left. You're not honoring your parents by putting them above your spouse. Okay? You good? All right, let's move on. Number two. We not only value family, we value life. And here God says, you shall not murder. I love the ESV here. The King James was a very good translation in 1611. In our modern times, we, a lot of people misinterpret this passage based upon thou shalt not kill. And thou shalt not kill is a great, great translation. In our modern times, we take that with the influx of Eastern religions and Eastern thinking to say thou shalt not kill anything. In India, you can't kill a fly. That might be your uncle or something. You know, equating human life and animal life or insect life or plant life. That's why we, you, know, you can't barely trim a tree in your yard because in our mindset, there's, in the culture's mindset, there, that's just as morally wrong as, as killing a person. And, and we, the clear-thinking people in the world see there's a clear distinction between the two. Well, what God is getting at in here is not about, it's not about the taking of any life because the Scripture is clear that it's okay in self-defense to take a life. Scripture's very clear about that. Scripture's also very clear long before this. We saw this with, uh, with Noah. When God instituted capital punishment for those who would take a human life, God gives the sword to take the life of the one who took God's image from the earth. Amen. That's okay. okay that's, that's sanctioned and God-honoring. Okay? So how we value life, we actually value life by be, being willing to die for life. To stand up for those who are being persecuted, to stand in the way of those whose lives are being shed. I've, I get into conversations with people who are convicted pacifists. I mean, convictional Completely, there is no case anywhere in which it's okay to take a life in, in defense in, in any way. And it's amazing. We actually, you can actually live in a country like the United States and be a pacifist because we believe that it's okay to defend freedom. You can't, you can't be a pacifist. Pacifists would not exist if you didn't if someone wasn't willing to die for you to have that freedom. Amen. And we are thankful. We're thankful for those who have shed their blood and done the unthinkable thing to protect the freedom that we have here, the freedoms that we have to live. And those right now that are around the world in places we can't name and we can't list them and talk to them who are defending our freedom. That's an amazing thing. And that's a God-honoring thing in valuing life. We also, we value life when we stand up for the unborn. I'm so thankful to be here today. My mom made a choice. You were born after 1973. Your mother made a conscious choice to have you. She legally could have walked into any clinic. Even now, you can take some, take some pills. And you have an abortion in the privacy of your own home. An unborn child is not a mess of tissue. He or she is God's creation. 
made in the image of God and precious in His sight. Amen. Now, what does, that, what does that mean for us as the church? That means we should do everything we can do to stop this in our society. This is, this is not much different than has been going on for centuries and centuries and centuries. The sacrifice of children. It means we should stand for life. It means we should pray for life. It means not only that we should make it clear to those who make our laws and enforce our laws where we stand, and it also means that this is an issue on which Christians should determine how they cast their vote. But it also means we should care for those who have gone through abortion. We should care and counsel those who are considering abortion. We should show the love of Christ. Amen? Amen. It's not just saying we're against it, but it's saying, okay, we're going to do something about it. And I'll tell you right here in Kershaw County, we are blessed. Not many places have an actual crisis pregnancy center. We do. And our center this year has seen 10 children who are here because their parents chose life. Their moms chose life. That's 10 that have come through that center just this year. That's awesome. That's amazing. That's a gospel witness. You know that if a woman is considering abortion, the last place and the last person she's going to tell... Anyone at church, and including her past, like I'm like the last one who's going to know. That's why we are blessed to have a center right here that we can work and give and volunteer. And just, uh, just yesterday, uh, we cut the ribbon on our ultrasound machine. Uh, we'll, be able, we'll be providing free ultrasounds for crisis pregnancies in our, in our community. Um, that's awesome. That's a work of God. The statistics in, uh, in the upstate when they got, uh, got ultrasound in Greenville is that 99% of the women who see their unborn child on the screen choose life after that. We value life. We value the beginning of life. We also value the end of life. I'm telling you, this is, um, this is not just stuff out of the history books. There's a term called euthanasia. And that's not talking about young people in another hemisphere. Okay? This is uh, another term we use. This is mercy killing. Okay? And it starts out saying, well, you know, it starts out with this, you know, under the guise of compassion, you know, we don't want people to suffer. But then who's to make that decision? We, 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 see this, um, we see this historically. This raised its head in a very modern, educated country in Europe. It said, well, we, we don't want people to suffer, so we allow them to end their lives. And then, then well, you know, times are tough. We want to offer the most excellent health care to everyone that we can so that if, if you have something that is terminal or something like that, we're, gonna, we're not going to do any kind of treatment for you. We're going to just let you kind of pass. We'll make you comfortable. It led to the extermination of six million people. If we're not careful, this comes to our country. If if men and women aren't created in the image of God, if, if all we are are people and, and our, our life is not, our life, the worth of our life is not based on us being a person, that it's based upon our quality of life, who are you to tell me what my quality of life is? Now it's going to be determined by someone else making those decisions for you and deciding whether your insurance is going to pay for that life-saving treatment, whether your life is worth it or not. 
if you're worthy of it. Who's ready for that? Who's ready for someone else to decide that for you or or for your family? I'm not. Under God, we value life. Why? Because he's the giver of life. He created life. He's the sustainer of life. We value life because in John 1, it says Jesus, uh, John 1, John tells us about Jesus. In him was life, and that life is the light of men. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We value life because that's what God desires for each and every one of us. We value him. And we value life so much that we honor life. Number three. Number three, we value marriage. It says in your text, you shall not commit adultery. Adultery is you know, breaking the, the bonds of marriage, being unfaithful in marriage. Here, um, just a fun fact for you, when I, I'm going through this, I, I was reminded in church history, you know, the, the first King James tra- authorized translation came out in 1611. There are multiple editions that came later. In 1631, there was a publishing house there in London that they, they were printing an authorized version, King's version, and they made a slight error on this verse. They left out the not. Thou shalt commit adultery. I don't know how many hundreds and thousands of, were produced before the error was caught. It is, it's, actually, it's actually called the Wicked Bible. There's a handful that survived being uh, rounded up and burned. The guys had to pay a massive fine for it. Um, so the Wicked Bible, you can find it on Wiki, Wikipedia. But God has called us to be faithful. In the Reformation, even, even up to the Reformation, there was an increasing kind of idea within the church that the relationship between a husband and wife was a bad thing, them coming together physically. It was, that was not that holy a thing. So much so that by the time, um, uh, by the time that Martin Luther came to the forefront and the Reformation started, the Catholic Church was telling couples that they had to refrain on any holy day, which meant there were 183 days throughout the year. You had to be celibate. Martin Luther, he, he tore that down. <laughs> Praise the Lord. God created the marriage relationship for our good and for His glory. He did. In fact, it's a picture between the relationship of Christ and the church. That relationship, the covenant, the love, the bond is more than anything else we experience in life. Our problem, the reason God puts it here and makes a very bold case for marital fidelity is because of the power of infidelity and what it does. The power of our physical relations and, and, and how powerful that is. And one, one illustration to that is sort of like superglue. Superglue is, whoever came up with superglue, it's an amazing. Eddie's holding his hand up. Have you glued your fingers together before? Yes. It is an amazing thing. I mean, it will put whatever you've broken of your wives like back together. Um, you know, all kinds gets you out of all kinds of all kinds of trouble. The problem is, it is so good and it is so strong when it's placed on the wrong thing. When you place it on the wrong thing, everything gets stuck. The picture is between a husband and wife when that which bonds us together, when that is shared with anyone else, that person then gets stuck to us. And the next person gets stuck to us. And next thing you know, there's pieces of you 
and then and, and then to rip that off, what's it do? What's it do when you have to rip off something with super glue? It tears the skin off. It leaves a mark. It leaves a scar. So the picture is that God created this for our good, for his glory, to be used how he designed it. In the loving and in the covenant relationship between a husband and a wife. We value marriage because God created marriage to show us His unconditional love, to show us His unconditional promise. You know, there's days when um, there's days when it's hard to be married. Y'all got I didn't get any amens on that. Y'all scared of amening on that? There's days. Can I? Can y'all? Cause we're gonna get to lying here in a minute. We ain't got to that. So don't you lie? It's hard, isn't it? It's difficult. There's, there's days. Amy wakes up and says, "Who are you?" And I say, "I don't know. <laughs> Who are you?" It's difficult. There's, there are days. I, I don't feel very loving. There are days Amy doesn't feel very loved. Praise God, she doesn't stay married to me based on her feelings or on my actions sometimes. Praise God, God doesn't keep his covenant with us based on our feelings for him based on our commitment to him sometimes because we're weak and we fail and we make mistakes sometimes we're not very loving sometimes we're not very kind but God is he he loves us so much he loves us in spite of ourselves he loves us so much he keeps his covenant to, to us in spite of ourselves and a couple that stayed together through thick and thin, through ups and downs, they know how much God loves them because they've lived it. They know God loves them in spite of themselves, that God's going to stay committed to them in spite of themselves. Marriage is a picture of that. So we grow closer together and grow closer to the Lord. Number four, we value personal property. We value personal property. Verse 15, you shall not steal. You shall not steal. To steal, if, for stealing to be a sin, it means that you have to be able to own stuff. If you don't own stuff, if everything belongs to everybody, then it's really not stealing, it's borrowing. Okay? So God actually is for you to have personal property. Unfortunately, in our culture, we have a problem with thou shalt not steal. Uh, There was one hotel when they started in the first year. First year of its existence, they reported having to replace 38,000 spoons, 18,000 tiles, 355 coffee pots, and 100 Bibles. The Gideons were okay with the Bibles. They forgave them on the Bibles. And uh, if you're one of those that you've stolen everything out of a hotel room, I, I, I take all the shampoo and the soap. I'll just say that. I do. I have a drawer, and Amy wonders, why are you keeping this stuff? I don't know. But I have soaps and shampoos, little tiny shampoos. Um, stealing is a sin. Stealing is a sin because it, it contradicts, it hurts us in a couple ways. Number one, when we steal, we're saying, God, I don't trust you to provide for me. We're failing to trust his provision. When we steal, we're, we're also saying, God, I, 
I don't trust how you've provided for someone else because they shouldn't have that. I, I want it. I'm going to go get it. But guess what is the greatest fallacy in all in thinking about stealing? Where does everything come from? If everything comes from God, who really owns everything? So when we steal, who are we really stealing from? Really stealing from Him. And God has called us, that means like the flip side of this, in valuing personal property, is not just, you know, respecting other people's stuff and being content with their own stuff, but it's, it's recognizing, God, all this stuff is yours. And recognizing I'm not an owner, I'm just a steward. I'm just stewarding what you have placed in my care for this time. And I want to be as wise a steward as I can be until you take all the stuff that you've given to me and you give it to somebody else. Because guess what? That day's going to come when Mark is going to meet with Carnegie or Robbie Powers and can plan your service. And at no point in that conversation are the guys at Carnegie going to say, okay, how big a U-Haul do you need? Hitched up to the back of the hearse. How, how much stuff are you going to need? That's not in the discussion. Why? It's not really ours. And where we're going, we can't take it with us. So God's called us to be the best stewards that we can be. Number five, we value truth. Thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor. Here he's, 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 pretty, um, he's pretty clear. He's helping, them, he's helping them set up society. You cannot have a society without laws. You cannot have law and order without truth. You know, um, all, it, all it would take would be for a charge to be against you in a court of law and everyone to lie and say whatever they wanted to be. And if you didn't have, if you didn't have to tell the truth in front of the judge, if he couldn't hold you in contempt or charge you with perjury, then what could you do? Whatever you wanted. There would really be no basis for society. Our relationship with one another is built upon truth. But guess what we like to do to one another? We don't like to speak the truth to one another. We like to lie. I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, every man in this room has been guilty. Honey, does this dress make me look fat? Funniest commercial I ever saw, the wife is asking him, honey, does this make me look, dress make me look fast? And he's sitting there reading the newspaper and he said, you betcha. <laughs> Whoops. The next funniest one is when uh, uh, Mrs. Lincoln comes in and asks, hey, Lincoln, does, it, does this dress make me look fat? And I don't know, I don't know if you've seen that one and it's in black and white, so it's, it's obviously authentic and um, authentic footage and he doesn't actually answer. He just says, um, because mm, uh, uh, honest Abe, you know, he can't lie. And he can't tell a lie. Man, we, we don't tell the truth to one another, though. We really don't. We like to um, tell half-truths. or We don't want to hurt people's feelings, things like that. Sometimes in the church we struggle with saying things that we really don't need to be saying. We, we call that gossip. Instead of talking the truth to someone, we talk a little misinformation or what we think or what we feel to someone else. Y'all, that's evil. Charles Spurgeon said, you wanna, if you want to tell the... This was in your uh, Gospel Project. Your teachers had this in their book. If you want to share the truth around the world, you're going to have to get a freight train in order to haul it, and it's going to take it forever. But if you want to tell a lie, the lightest feather, and in an instant, it'll spread. Isn't that true? Amen. Why, do we value, why should we value truth and... Not gossip. Why should, we, why should we value the things of truth? Why? Because our God is a God of truth. He doesn't deal in falsehoods. He doesn't deal in innuendos. 
He deals in right and wrong, black and white. He shares the truth. Why? Because He is the truth. The same way we should value truth, stand on truth, be willing to share the truth. Finally, number six, we value contentment. We value contentment. See, right here it says, you shall not covet. And then I love God. He knows us because, you know, someone's going to say, well, I could covet this or that, or what can I or cannot covet? So he, he then like lays it all out. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You, not, you know, I feel like green eggs and ham. I do not like them, same I am. I do not like them on a house. I do not like them wherever. I mean, he just, you know, just, he lays it all out. In no way should you be coveting. Now, it's, it's pretty awesome how, you know, coveting is desiring that which someone else owns. Okay. It's so cool he ends here of the Ten Commandments. And it's almost like we're ending back where we started. Because what does it say when we're constantly envying, well, man, Bill, man, that pickup Bill drives, man, it is awesome. The decal on the side, man, I wish I had Phil's truck. I mean, it, I do. I wish I did. Man. I wish I had Keith's house. It's right across the street from mine, but it's better. It is. He has a better view of the carpool lane at the middle school than I do. He's got a bigger backyard. He does. He's got a backhoe over there. Man, the days I wish I could just run out my front door and just run over there and get in that backhoe and I don't know, just dig up dirt. I don't even know why. Man, amen, right? Yeah, but what does it mean when we're we're so preoccupied with what everyone else has? Or their family, or their situation, or how much money they have, or their job, or whatever it can be. Any fill in the blank, whatever it is for you. What does that mean? If we're desiring that, it means we, we, we think that if we just have that situation, if we just had, if we just had a, a spouse like this person, or my spouse was just like this person, or my family's like this person, or I just had this job or whatever, that I would be happy, that I would be content, that I would be Guess what you're putting your faith and trust and salvation in? A thing. A created thing. And what does God say at the very beginning? You will have no other gods besides me. Meaning, your joy, your hope, your contentment, your fulfillment... I'm the only one who can provide all of those things for you. And yet, we think that everything else is going to do it. When are we going to learn? When are we going to learn? When are we going to learn that He's all we need? When are we going to learn that He is our only hope? When are we going to learn to find all of our joy and all of our contentment in Him who loves us unconditionally, who died for us and sacrificed Himself for us? It reminds me, as we close, that Jesus was here and He ran into the the rich young ruler. You remember that one? And the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, master, rabbi, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? I'm ready. What do I need to do? We already messed up because it's not something we do. It's something Jesus did. But Jesus says, I'll tell you what. He saw right through the man. 
And he said, have you heard the commandments? Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. He, he, it's almost like he cuts Jesus off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've done all those things since I was a little boy. I mean, I went to rabbinical school. I memorized them in Sunday school. I know them all. I know the perfect ten. I've done all of them. Which means what did he probably just do? He probably just broke one. <laughs> At least one right there. A little fib right there. Jesus said, okay. He, he kind of says, okay, well, that's good. I'll tell you what. You sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And come back and you can follow me. What's it say he did? The Bible says he, young ruler, he walked away sad. He was extremely wealthy. It wasn't about how much, it wasn't that he was rich. It wasn't that the, the, the guy had a lot of money. It was that he loved his money more than he loved Jesus. He was seeking to find his contentment in his wealth and in his power than in Jesus. And Jesus said, really, for you to follow me, you're going to have to set that idol aside in your heart before you can follow me. We may be here, we, we may not have a lot of money, we may not be wealthy, we may not have much, but there may be something that's getting in between us and God. And he's saying, you can do all these things on the outside, but until I have your heart, it's all meaningless. This morning, I'm going to invite you to stand together as we have a time of invitation. I just want to, I want to challenge you. As we, man, for two weeks, we've been looking at God's laws and God's command. Holiness starts in the heart. Who has your heart? And this morning I would challenge you, give Jesus your heart and then allow His Holy Spirit to grow your love for Him and your love for others so, and grow you. And we call that sanctification when the Spirit starts taking over and you look more like Jesus than the world. You look more like Jesus than sin. Let Him take over. Can I challenge you with that this morning? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Dear Lord, we come before you. We just give this time before you. You have, you have made the way you are the way.